Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness, as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Our discussion today is with Dr. Erica Kelly, an adult clinical psychologist at the University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio. She'll be talking about sexual assault and intimate partner violence. She's an expert in female sexual dysfunction, psychological issues with infertility, postpartum depression and anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and interpersonal violence victimization. She will explain the definition and prevalence as well as the evidence-based screening, evaluation, and management of this unfortunate issue. Please look in the show notes to see articles Dr. Kelly provided for further study and her contact information. Please enjoy this podcast. Well, today we have Dr. Erica Kelly, a psychologist from the University Hospitals in Cleveland, and uh, it's it's very excited to have her because she's an expert in sexual assault and intimate partner violence, which for me is a very unfortunate thing we have to talk about, but extremely necessary if we're going to help people with their sexual health, just because it's so prevalent. And she is an expert and she can help prepare us all on, first of all, how to just find people who've had this horrible experience and then what to do about it. So thanks for, for your help today, Erica. Thanks so much for coming on. And I'd like to start with the first question is, would you just please give us some definitions, talk about sexual assault and intimate partner violence? Sure. And I want to first say I'm very excited to be here today. I love talking about this topic, even though it's a very painful, right? An uncomfortable one. So to define sexual assault, it really refers to a continuum of sexual activities or experiences that range from unwanted sexual contact, like kissing or fondling, through rape, which is defined as any level of penetration of the vagina or anus with an object or a body part, and it can also include oral penetration. These events can occur in situations of coercion or through force or when the individual is incapacitated or unable to give consent. So for example, in situations where they may be under the influence of alcohol, or are a minor. When looking at these definitions too, you'll see variations in terms of research and legal settings. But one other thing to consider is the range of relationships involved in sexual assault. So it might be situations of incest, if it's between family members, or it may be situation, things like acquaintance rape, where it is between partners or individuals, someone who the victim knows. Is that into um, partner violence? Is that what they mean by that? Well, so actually... Sexual assault can occur within the context of intimate partner violence. So when we're looking at the definition of intimate partner violence, that also includes a continuum of acts. So this can be a pattern of assaultive behavior or coercive behavior that can include physical injury, psychological abuse, sexual assault, as we're saying, progressive isolation, deprivation, intimidation, stalking, 
and reproductive coercion. So it really hits a wide continuum of experiences. But those behaviors are perpetrated by someone who is, was, or wants to be a partner with that victim. And so the, the behavior is really is about establishing control over that person. There was another term, if you comment on interpersonal trauma, how does that fit in with what we're talking about? I use the term interpersonal trauma as a very broad concept, and it can be inclusive of sexual assault and any level of intimate partner violence. But it can also include really any interpersonal experiences that are traumatic or abusive. So this might be a parent to child in terms of psychological abuse, right? So that's beyond intimate partner violence. That's beyond sexual assault. So it's really referring to any physical, sexual psychological abuse that occurs interpersonally. That's what I would consider as a definition. And when we're considering the term trauma, right, that's a whole other world to talk about. Um, But really, when I think of trauma, I am thinking about it really matters to pay attention to the perception of the individual who experienced that, right? It is their perception of if that was a traumatic experience. Sometimes people don't recognize it as traumatic and they might not understand their traumatic reactions, but I do think it's really relevant that we pay attention to the individual's experience and how they perceive it. I think this is so important to talk about because, you know, everything you read, this this happens a lot. Unfortunately, yes, it does. We see a bit of variations in statistics, partly because, as you can imagine, it is such a stigmatized topic still to this day. We know that individuals who perpetrate intimate partner violence or sexual assault are not commonly persecuted. So I think that's one of those barriers to reporting these experiences. So a lot of barriers, and why I'm mentioning that, is it also means there there might be ways in which we're under-assessing, you know, um, underestimating the rates of these. But about one in five women will experience attempted or completed rape. About one in 14 men have experienced attempted or completed rape across the lifetime. So that's just one example of the statistics that we see. That's huge. That just really takes me back that it's just so prevalent. So it's it's not one of those things that if we see in our practice, it's when we see it. And yeah. I just think it's incredible. Now, when it comes to seeing somebody after an assault, I know there's, a, you know, acute consequences, you know, bruises and bites and things like that. But also there's there's a lot of chronic sequelae from, from this kind of thing. And being a psychologist, mm-hmm. I really would love to get your thoughts on all the chronic things, that, all the uh, post-trauma things that, that people go through because of assault. Sure. And unfortunately, it is quite a wide range of chronic conditions, chronic experiences, consequences that can come from assault. In terms of mental health conditions, most common consequences are depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And in fact, sexual assault is the number one predictor of PTSD. It's the, the, the most common traumatic event that is related to the development of PTSD. So that's part of why we see disproportionate rates of PTSD among women, because they experience sexual assault and intimate partner violence at higher rates than men do. That must help then in the um, screening process, of course. Let's go into a little bit of that, what every provider should do who takes care of women. Yeah, when we're thinking about screening, it it is actually a little more complex than what might appear on the surface because it depends a bit on your position, depends a bit on your setting. 
What we do know is that victims of sexual assault, victims of intimate partner violence tend not to spontaneously disclose these incidents. So it really does indicate that that burden lies on the provider, right? That we have a responsibility to be screening for these experiences. And because of the prevalence of sexual assault and intimate partner violence and the negative impacts of those, many organizations, including ACOG, have recommended universal screening for sexual assault. So in women's health settings like OB-GYN care, mental health settings, we probably should be doing universal screening. So universal screening can help normalize the experiences or normalize that it is okay to talk about this. It can help facilitate open discussion, but certainly there can be provider barriers to screening, things like time constraints, right, lack of training and informed care. So when we think about screening practices, if we think about universal screening. This requires really good and clear documentation policies, really strong provider education, making sure they are trained in trauma-informed care, and I'm sure we will talk a little bit about that, and ensuring that you have adequate treatment resources. Several different factors might impact how you screen when you screen, um, but really it can be screened for at any time, any visit, I think it's important to give multiple opportunities for an individual to disclose. So maybe you include that as part of your clinical interview, and maybe you ask a question like, have you ever had an unwanted sexual experience, or has there ever been a time where someone engaged in, you know, described that sexual act, and we can go into more examples of those items. But you can do it verbally in an interview. If you do that, I think it is very important to make sure you build rapport first with your patient. It is not the question you want to start off with, right? You want to make sure you build rapport. You want to make sure at the outset of your visit, before you screen, that you are describing clearly what happens if they give you a positive response, right? So if you are in a position of mandated reporting, if you have some sort of reporting that you need to do, you need to make sure you are telling that person ahead of time so that they understand the consequences of their disclosure and walk them through what will happen if they disclose that experience. And again, you want to make sure that you you are informed in trauma-informed care, that you are doing this in a very safe and comfortable environment. So when I talk about that, I mean, get down on eye level with the individual. Make sure they are closed, right? I would not do this in the middle of a pelvic exam. You want to make sure that they are sitting, that they feel comfortable, they feel safe. I think you can also screen in other ways in terms of if you want to have a written screening. You might put pamphlets up in your office just to indicate it's a safe environment to talk about these experiences. One additional thing I would say to consider in screening is make sure you screen the individual when they are alone, right? You do not want to do this in front of a partner, even a family member, unless that person asks someone to be there. But I really would not screen when other people are around. We know that sometimes screening for partner violence, if it is present in a relationship, and if that partner is there, it can actually increase risk for the individual. So you want to make sure that that you're really doing this in a safe way as well. Would you explain (laughs) what is meant by, you know, when you said they have to know what will happen if their response is positive, what exactly will happen if their response is positive? So I would say that depends on two things. One is the timing of the assault or intimate partner violence. So is this something that happened 20 years ago or is this something that happened yesterday with a current partner? So the timing will be important. And then also your role, what kind of provider you are will determine if you need to report that 
experience to authorities. So in my role as a psychologist, I am not mandated to report sexual assault if someone comes to me and says, this happened to me last weekend. I am not mandated to report that. I am mandated to report childhood sexual assault. So if that happens, I do need to report that to authorities. But I would say be very clear, like make sure that you understand in your role and your setting what are the reporting policies. It sort of really does depend on your role and who you need to contact. So that clearly requires education on the providers. Right. You know, there's people sitting, listening, thinking, where am I going to get this kind of education? What would you tell them? Sure. I think there are a lot of different great resources available. RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, is a wonderful resource. There's local resources in terms of domestic violence, also national helplines, support lines. All of those have phenomenal websites. These organizations are really readily available. I refer people to them all the time. The National Domestic Violence Center has resources as well. So I think there's just tremendous online resources. They have call numbers that you can call too if you're uncertain about a situation and you need some consulting, you can do that. But I would start, I would start there. If you ask the question, you know, have you had unwanted sexual advances, how successful, say, me as a an OBGYN or our nurse practitioner, how successful is just asking that question alone in the office at, at getting to these, finding these people who've had this experience? I would say tremendously successful. We do see from some of the more rigorous research that has looked at screening, Veterans Affairs Hospitals has a tremendous screening program, but we see a little bit of data that does support it as tremendously successful. Again, it depends on how you are asking, right, and what your response is as well. So when we're talking again about how you ask, I would say make sure you're building that rapport right? I would say you want to be also very clear about the terminology you were using. One thing to keep in mind is that most individuals who have experienced rape actually don't label it that way. So you might want to consider staying away from terms that are very specific like that. Like I would, you know, recommend not saying something like, have you ever been raped? You want to use very behaviorally specific language when you're assessing for these, because Some individuals just might not identify as a rape victim or someone who has experienced that. Again, part of that is the stigma around this topic, unfortunately, but that is also something I would say to consider when you're screening. So you want to be careful about your wording. You could say things like, have you ever been forced or pressured to engage in sexual activities when you didn't want to? Have you ever had unwanted sex when under the influence of alcohol or drugs? There are various ways that you can ask that. But again, if you ask it the right way, it's tremendously successful. I think that's getting into the trauma-informed care. Can can you comment about that? We read a lot about that. Sure. So there are several different principles around trauma-informed care. That's to acknowledge and understand the effect of trauma. This goes back to what you were saying about education. It's very, very important to be educated about the impact of traumatic experiences, impact of interpersonal violence. So that's acknowledging the effects of the trauma acknowledging and being able to recognize signs and symptoms of trauma, integrating that knowledge into your practice, and then reducing the possibility of re-victimization. Okay. And we can talk a lot more about what that means, but that means that you might want to anticipate in your practice, what types of experiences might be triggering 
are re-traumatizing for that patient. If they've experienced sexual assault, very huge chance that they are going to be uncomfortable going through a pelvic exam. So you want to think about what, for you and your practice, what might be triggering and what do you need to consider? One concept that comes up in trauma-informed care is the idea of universal precaution. So it's the idea of even if you didn't screen, if you don't have time to screen or you forgot to screen, it is important to go ahead and continue in that trauma-informed care. Because of the prevalence of sexual assault and intimate partner violence, you might want to think about a couple other principles that are part of trauma-informed care, regardless of, you know, whether if, if you forgot to screen or if you did screen and got a positive response, you'd want to make sure that you're ensuring physical and emotional safety for your individual, making sure that you are considering a very safe environment. You want to maximize the trust and you want to maximize the amount of power and control that person has. Any little difference matters, right? If you can say, would you rather me lay cloth over you this way or that way? Would you rather me use, you know, this instrument or that instrument? Would you let, rather talk about this beforehand or afterhand? Anything that you can do to give them some feeling of control and choice and power back in their lives, I think is incredibly important. A lot of times people do in trauma-informed care, walking the individual through every single step. So if you're doing a pelvic exam, telling them everything that you're doing and why, I think that is a good default, but you can always ask as well, right? What can I do to make this more comfortable for you? Is it helpful if I tell you every step of the way? Is it helpful if somebody comes in and holds your hand? Is it helpful if you play some music? What can I do that is helpful in this experience for you? What can I do to make this a more comfortable, safe environment? And that's all part of trauma-informed care. So trauma-informed care is like an approach. Um, do you teach uh, providers a, a particular way of screening, going through a step-by-step -step process to do the screening? Or is, or is it just that one question, have you had any unwanted sexual uh, events? How do you do that? What do you tell providers? Sure. I would say if, if you do have the time, I think it's good to screen in multiple ways. You can consider there's something called the HITS measure, which is a very brief measure of interpersonal violence. And it's, I think, four or five items. But you can read straight from that. If you, if you want to have your written questions right in front of you, if you feel nervous, you're not sure you're going to remember at all. I think that's a great, very brief screening assessment to use. I would also recommend some of the screening items from ACOG, actually, that list out. These are specific to sexual assault. So these would be back to those items, like, has anybody ever touched you against your will or without your consent? Have you ever been forced or pressured to engage in any sexual act? And have you ever had any unwanted sexual activities when under the influence of alcohol or any other substances or when you were asleep? One thing, too, I would say with this screening is I usually recommend clarifying across the lifespan. I have found sometimes individuals mistakenly think I only mean childhood or I only mean adulthood. And so I often will say, you know, I'm talking about across your lifespan. Has this ever happened to you? I personally think that's helpful to clarify. But again, I think like the ACOG items that are recommended, and I think the HITS measure recommendation items, those are great starting points for screening. Depending on the practice that you're in, if you're a psychologist, you know, if you're an OB-GYN provider, you might have your own organizations that um, have different recommendations. But to me, those are really 
really great starting points for screening. The other thing, again, you can consider is making sure you have signage, making sure you have information up in your office, right? That this is a comfortable and safe place to talk about these things. So that even if you do that screening the first time and they don't disclose it, you're sending the message that this is a safe place to bring this up. Would you go through with us, you know, you get a positive response. Yes, this has happened to me. What are the steps I should be going through to to maximize my aid to this person? First and foremost, show them that you believe them. Validate and listen to them, right? You need to show that you believe them. That is just number one. Number two is ensure them that it is not their fault. Those, I would say, are the first two things to consider. Believe and show that you believe and tell them it is not your fault, right? And then I think the next thing to do is to consider what kinds of resources might this individual have and ask them how you can help. So this moves into that intervention stage, right? So you, this will depend back in your practice. If I think it's great to have a list of mental health resources available. Individuals who maybe specialize in trauma-informed care, specialize in working with individuals who have experienced sexual assault or intimate partner violence. I think it's great to know your network and be able to immediately refer when someone brings that up. And you can offer that referral in a very open way, right? I think, again, sometimes individuals have had these experiences uh, feel like their control and power is taken away. So back to giving that power to the individual, you can say something along the lines of many people who I have worked with who've experienced sexual assault experiences like that or have had similar experiences have benefited from seeing a member of our behavioral health team. Would you like me to send in a referral for you? No, I was just going to summarize, validate, you know, say it's not your fault and then offer resources that can, that can help. Would you ever utilize the nurse examiners in emergency rooms, the SANE, S-A-N-E, and the SAFE, S-E-F-E, examiners in emergency rooms that are trained in um, evaluating people who've been assaulted? Certainly. I think that should be offered to anyone who experiences sexual assault. And I think it's great for providers to really, really make sure you understand those resources, understand where they're available and pay attention to their, their factors that go into that like timeline, how long it has been since the sexual assault. So if you're seeing someone immediately afterwards and you're sending them to a same exam, their recommendations, things like they shouldn't shower, change their clothes as much as possible. So I do really recommend that people become very familiar with sane and safe resources. They're just phenomenal resources. I, I think that uh, certainly one of the things that come up when people are assaulted is uh, sexually transmitted infections and pregnancy. Now, I know you're a psychologist, but but I speak to that for us. Um, you know, because these people are exposed to these things. G give me, give us some of the ABCs of, of what we as providers should make sure is done for these patients. So one thing to say, it, it is very important to be aware of that, right? I, I believe the rape-related pregnancy rate is about 5% per rape in women of reproductive years. So that's thousands and thousands, you know, over 30,000, I believe, per year. So it's very, very important to be aware of that. I think very important to be able to offer emergency contraceptive, be able to, you know, as soon as possibly being able to screen for STIs, 
I think it's helpful to refer back to mental health support as well, right? It can be very, very challenging to cope with that news and understanding and the myth of also coping with, you know, and responding to this traumatic experience. I think this is where working with an interdisciplinary team and helping this individual understand what does that mean? You know, what options are available to me? Um, what do I need to know? The other thing I would say with that is if you are sharing information to the individual in an um, office setting, you know, maybe a diagnosis of an STI, something like that, make sure you're also giving them that information in a written format if, if that's okay with them. Because sometimes it's really hard, you know, to understand the information in the midst of a session. And I would definitely schedule a follow-up appointment within one or two weeks to make sure that they're really understanding the impact of that and what to do next. I hope you don't mind, but I I know you've had a personal experience before all of your PhD training in in advocating for people. Could you tell us just a little bit about some of the pearls you learned helping some of these uh, victims? Sure. Yes. So as you said, I worked as a rape victim advocate or volunteered as a rape victim advocate um, in my pre-graduate school years. And so part of our role was as soon as a call came into an ER that someone had presented with sexual assault, basically, uh, we were called to go to the ER, uh, meet the individual who unfortunately experienced that and sit with them through the whole process of the SANE examination Um, We would also sit with them through the process of typically the police coming and taking a report. And it was very meaningful and astounding experience. And I remember one experience we had was that if the victim had presented to an ER within a Catholic hospital, the emergency contraceptive was not available to them. And what we found is that the individual who experiences the victim or the survivor did not necessarily know that, right? They're, they're recovering from this extremely traumatic event. They're not thinking about what hospital they're going to. They're not thinking about that. They don't know that ahead of time. So I think these are the types of things that so important for providers know. It's so important for our public to know, know what resources are available. And I would say so important, again, to validate and be empathic, offer to hold a hand right? Offer to listen, validate, validate, validate. That was just one of the most critical roles that we held as advocates for the individual. You're very informed. You're very passionate. We really appreciate so much of your input on just what to do about this unfortunate, but so necessary discussion that we must have with people sometime. Is there any final pearls you want to leave us with, Erica? One other pearl I would say is also take care of your own mental health, right? This is a traumatic topic. This is hard. This is very challenging. And I often will see that providers sometimes avoid screening for these because it's hard to listen to. It's hard to sit with this reality, unfortunately, that these these incidents happen and occur. So the other thing I would keep in mind is just pay attention to your own mental health. Pay attention to the possibility for vicarious trauma. So I think get your peer network, get your support and take care of your own mental health, because we need to do that as providers to ensure that we are giving the best patient care. Well, I wish we had a, a, an Erica Kelly in, in, in our town, and, and I hope everybody can find somebody with your experience and knowledge. So thank you again and hope to talk to you again. Have a Have a great day. Thank you so much.